Good afternoon. <coughs> Excuse me. Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 28th of August, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today is myself, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border, and uh, Mark Anderson, who's uh, speaking from Michigan, the USA. Well, we're going to get uh, straight into ULEZ. And uh, David, this is coming in with a vengeance now. Well, it is. So it's being expanded. So we see here in the map the uh, 2021 ULI zone, and it's now been pushed out <laughs> in 2023 all the way basically to the M25, out to the outskirts of London. And well, how is that going? It transpires not well. So we have the BBC reporting here more than 300 cameras damaged or stolen in four months. Um, and we're talking about cameras being removed, damaged, obscured. And an unofficial data mapping uh, the location of disabled cameras suggests that actually it's almost 500 cameras which have been affected. And if we go to that unofficial map, um, I encourage people to have a look at this online, Julie's ULES map, and you see the little black pins and the little black dots are cameras which are no longer there or are no longer working. The first impression here is obviously Look at the number of cameras that are. There's a huge number of them, um, but many are no longer functioning. So uh, what are the authorities doing to uh, quell this civil disobedience? Well, they're threatening them with, uh, with severe police action because that's what a police state does. Uh, Met Police here, the Guardian reports, vows to combat protests against London's ULS rollout. Notice how the Guardian isn't defending the protesters in this particular case, the Guardian passes no comment about the severity of the crackdown on any protests. It's quite happy. It says threats of violence as ultra-low emission zone expands, um, begins, but the mayor defends all this as essential for health. Uh, and the police have said they're going to use considerable resources to protect the expansion um, amid fears of a spike in vandalism, well, there has been this, and disruptive protests. The force's uh, declaration came as London Mayor Sadiq Khan issued a fierce defence of the bitterly contested policy, saying he was acting to tackle toxic air and prevent the capital's children growing up with stunted lungs. And you'll see here how all of the language is hyperbolic and very alarmist. This is how they sell these policies. There is no logic and no calmness and no reason. And... Uh, how is this uh, hyperbolic language playing in southeast London? If we look back at the map here, we will see uh, not well at all. In southeast London, most of the cameras are no longer functioning, uh, thanks to some very brave people removing them. Um, and it's not just uh, individual action to tackle the cameras themselves. There's legal action going on. So the Sun here reports uh, on the 27th of August, the ULS is illegal. The hated expansion uh, of the U.S. is in chaos after a landmark legal ruling that the signage is unlawful and you can get your money back. So if you've been fined, please ask for your money back and let us know how that goes. Uh, London Mayor Sadiq Khan's uh, hated scheme is in chaos, all due to scaffolder Noel Wilcox. He was hit with £11,500 in penalties and he won a ruling that the key signs uh, weren't lawful. He said the Road Traffic Act states that states that if there's a risk that motorists are going to be charged, you have to let them know. But the low emission zones just say ULEZ. They don't make it clear about the charges. So he's won a case. Uh, there's another case now happening in Scotland. The same uh, policies have been run out in Glasgow. 
And this is now going to go for judicial review. So Scotsman reports here that the judge has given the green light for the court action. And uh, this is uh, going to be a full judicial review. Um, and it's going to go to court in October after Judge Senate made the case uh, had a real prospect of success. Um, so the Glasgow became the first Scottish city to introduce the low emission zones at the end of 2018 in a bid to improve air quality around the most heavily congested roads, with the regulations initially aimed at buses. Um, again, we have the same uh, hyperbolic language. Environmentalists have hailed the move, which say will help cut unne unnecessary deaths and provide breathable air. And similar schemes are coming to Edinburgh, Dundee and Aberdeen. Uh, business in businesses in Glasgow, however, have launched a, a case. They say that the, the scheme disproportionately penalises poorer people, the elderly and those with disabilities, and they've called the scheme hugely det detrimental and redundant because the air quality had already improved through the measures against diesel buses. Uh, Lady Poole, um, she's allowed the case to go ahead, saying it raises important matters of public interest which include wider issues of air quality and climate change, which underlie the matters discussed. And um, the man who, who generated this auto repair centre, you notice how it's all ordinary people who are bringing these challenges. It's not, it's not um, magistrates, it's not lawyers, it's ordinary men and women who are fighting back. Um, so this is William Payton, who runs an auto repair centre in Townhead. He said, without fines, there are no low emission zones and it can be shown that the air quality targets were met, they achieved the goals in 2022, so we don't need them. Um, so, Brian, what do you think of this example of people power using the courts and using uh, unconventional means? It's because people have got to stand up and make something happen because their opinion simply isn't wanted. Uh, we had an incident a little while ago in Glastonbury when people were, were standing up to speak out about 15-minute cities and the mayor was regarding those people just as a mob. Their opinions were valueless. And I think the same thing's going on here on a much bigger scale. This is the edict about future cities and um, that policy is going to be put in place. And we've now got the police working alongside the government. This is a fascist state, is it not, which is driving this agenda? This is the issue. It's, it's a police state. It's police enforcing unpopular laws that are not the will of the people that can't be justified with uh, any basis of reason or logic. Uh, they are only justified by hyperbolic uh, political language and police enforcement and threats, and they are receiving the lack of popularity that they deserve. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. Of course, uh, speed cameras were attacked in the early days, uh, but then those attacks seem to uh, drop off, but uh, we'll see what happens in this case. Of course, UK Column couldn't condone any form of unlawful activity, but uh, the key thing is that people are making their voices heard. Um, Mark, this is probably a good uh, time to bring you in because, of course, what's happening with cities or the policies for the future development of cities is not simply being created by the people who live in those cities. Much bigger powers are at work. What have you got for us? We've talked about global and smart cities. <clears throat> they're trying to elevate cities' authority well beyond what they're actually authorized to do. And that manifests itself in many ways. Now, what we have here, this is actually a few years old, about 2019, 2020. But as we know, with the establishment, things are put on the stove and they simmer for a long time. 
Uh, and this report is called The Future of Urban Consumption in a 1.5 Celsius degree world uh, under C40 cities. The C40 cities is a grouping of cities dedicated to combating climate change. And here on the foreword to this report, a rather lengthy report that I went through, it says in the upper right there, cities drive the global economy and urban decisions have impact well beyond city boundaries. And there's more meaning to that than you think. This is put together not only by C40, but also Arup and the University of Leeds. And I'm showing that here, University of Leeds, Arup, which I'll describe in a moment, and C40 cities. This report by C40, Arup, and the University of Leeds assesses the impact of urban consumption very important here, urban consumption on climate breakdown and explores the type and scale of changes needed to ensure the C40 cities reduce their GHG emissions in line with internationally agreed climate safe limits. And we'll move on from there. We'll talk more about consumption. <clears throat> um, a lot could be said here. The uh, uh, I'll read the second part. Leadership and collaboration are essential to affect the kind of changes that will be required in international supply chains. City mayors can set a vision and convene actors. Here's more of that globalese language to bring about the changes we describe. Leadership will also be needed from national governments. They're mentioned sort of secondary businesses and from individual people, really. Well, we'll see. The reported, the work reported here forces a focus on what a sustainable urban future might look like and helps us consider what policies, regulations, incentives, and behavioral changes will be necessary to transition to a zero carbon world. And we'll go from there. Um, this is a little bit about Arup. Uh, they're a little bit more ambiguous. This is from their website, Leading Sustainable Development. Arup is a global collective of designers, engineering and sustainability consultants, advisors and experts dedicated to sustainable development and to using imagination, technology and rigor to shape a better world. And they have their fingers in a lot of pies, engineering projects all around the world, including the tube in London. Some updates on that. Now the C40, uh, we'll describe C40 a little more. It's a global network of mayors of the world's leading cities and the head of it right now is the London Mayor Sadiq Khan, of course. And they're united in their action to confront this ongoing so-called climate crisis. And we'll keep moving from there. Uh, this is just from the introduction to the C40 report. They're looking at broadening cities' climate action. That's broadening that action by considering consumption-based emissions. That's really important. We'll get more to that in a moment. What can cities and mayors do to support action on consumption? as part of their drive to limit global warming and continuing the collective journey to leverage cities' role in global mitigation efforts. And we'll get a little more into the nitty gritty as we move along. <clears throat> Human consumption, not just production, is now being eyed much more for reducing climate change. This is what's significant here. New ways of measuring the climate footprint of C40 cities show that urban consumption is a key driver of these global emissions. And while C40 cities have strong action plans in place to significantly cut emissions 
produced directly within their geographic boundaries, emissions measured by what is consumed within C40 cities are rising and, if left unchecked, will nearly double, they claim, by 2050, plus 87%, allegedly. And to avoid climate breakdown, not just a climate crisis, but climate breakdown, emissions from global urban consumption, get this, must have or be cut in half by 2030. That's only a few years away. For this to be achieved, emissions from consumption in high-income cities must decrease by two-thirds within the next decade. At the same time, rapidly developing economies need to adopt sustainable consumption patterns when growing. So these are some major goals they're laying out here. And uh, we'll uh, kind of begin to summarize. Urban action on consumption can significantly reduce emissions from key consumption categories, such as buildings and infrastructure, 26% by 2030, 44% by 2050. Food consumption reduced 36% by 2030, 60% by 2050. Private transport, 28% by 2030, 39% by 2050. Clothing and textiles reduced 39% by 2030, 66% by 2050. That's less clothing being produced and consumed, less commerce, evidently. Electronics and household appliances reduced 18% by 2030, 33% by 2050, as well as aviation with some similar percentages there, and cutting consumption-based emissions will deliver wider benefits, they claim, for a city and its residents, individuals, businesses, and city governments all stand to gain if these things are delivered in the right way. They're saying that health is improved and mortality rates are lowered when it's safer to walk and cycle rather than drive, where there's more public space, where the air is cleaner. We've been talking a little bit about that, where water and land are used effectively well, who defines effectively on using water and land where housing is more affordable? And they talk about people eating less meat, having fewer heart conditions and things like that. Well, an element of that could be true, of course. And uh, a little bit more where the science says we are. And this really uh, outlines where they see cities as really being powerhouses in this world. Cities are leading on tackling climate change, and uh, climate change, cl- uh, climate breakdown, that is by setting ambitious targets. Uh, Cities are at the center of the world economy and decisions made uh, in those cities have a significant impact on emissions, et cetera, within and beyond their boundaries. C40 cities have already peaked, get this, C40 cities have already peaked in terms of production-based emissions. So now the ongoing long-term plan that's been simmering on the stove here, uh, the globalist kitchen, you might say, is that now we got to look at consumption. Now we got to look at what and how much food people are eating, what and how much clothing they're uh, possessing and buying. And so the whole gamut of human activity, Brian uh, and, and David, is being much more brought into focus here. And so this is something we need to uh, drag off out of the back files here and get it out in front of us because some of these things get past us and we got to see the whole plan. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that report. And of course, clean air is part of these uh, targets so we can understand what's happening in London. Uh, This is not policy coming in through the UK government. This is globalist policy uh, coming in uh, in line with UN sustainable development plans.
Uh, well, where is the air not so clean? And that's clearly Ukraine, but it doesn't matter because in Ukraine, we're happy to burn fuel, explode weapons and destroy people. Let's just catch up with uh, what's been happening. This is a report from a few days ago, but I think it's very significant because it's our very own Admiral Sir Tony Radikin with his bestie friend, uh, because he's been on a visit to uh, Ukraine, some of it which was made public and some of it wasn't. So if we have a look at some of the reports here, uh, this was no ordinary discussion. Zaluzny brought his entire command team with him on the 300-mile journey from Kiev. The aim of the fire-up five-hour meeting was to help reset Ukraine's military strategy. And the point about that was because the Ukrainian strategy is not working on the battlefield. The summit at the border had partly come about after Radikin travelled without any British ministers to Kiev, where he held an unpublicised 45-minute meeting with the Ukrainian president. So the British public not even entitled to know uh, what senior British military personnel are doing uh, when they're visiting Ukraine. Uh, the report went on to say that the White House has got anxiety about the US appearing to be closely involved in the Ukraine war, but it's not a problem for Britain. So Radican was there and uh, the comment was that Britain, whose military is far smaller than the US, has no such concerns. So we're right alongside the Ukrainians and uh, Admiral Radican is leading, it would appear, the disastrous counteroffensive. Now have a look at this picture. This is from uh, X, from the Twitter page. Um, more grinning photographs um, with hands and arms around each other. Uh, and part of the comment in the article we've just covered is that normally, apparently, Radican brings a bottle of Glenmorangie, uh, Zaluzny's favourite whiskey, as a gift. So this is an old boys network which is helping to ramp up and sustain the war, and it will be sustained, as we'll see in a minute. But let's have a look at the realities for Ukrainians as their snatch squads operate on the streets. Um, this is another... I can't see the age, but I think he's a youngish man being dragged off to the battlefield. And the reality is he's probably not going to live long. Uh, if we have a look at a um, video clip, um, we don't usually show many video clips because they're just too difficult to watch. But this really sums up the battle. And of course, we can see that this is filmed from a Russian drone. We've got Ukrainian troops in the foreground or one individual. And as a result of uh, an attack by a shell, he's retreating. But uh, watch what happens as uh, the surveillance continues. So the reality on the battlefield is that whoever controls the zone, the drones uh, can, of course, see what's happening on the battlefield. The Russians have the artillery and ultimately truly horrible events like this are happening on a daily basis, supported, of course, by um, the UK government and the UK Ministry of Defence. So these um, Ukrainian troops are clearly killed by a direct shell hit, uh, which occurs in a few seconds. This is truly tragic stuff, but as I say, it's happening across the battlefield. And meanwhile, uh, we've got uh, these people um, conducting meetings out of sight of the public. And we should remember that the statistics so far are 25,000 killed 
This is just in the Ukrainian offensive. This is nothing to do with the rest of the sustained fighting. Now, um, recently there was an interview. Um, I'll just let this play in the background um, uh, a little bit. This was an interview um, where Zelensky uh, did quite a, a long piece, about an hour and a half, I think, with a lady called Natalia Mosichuk. And as you see from the uh, start of the video, We've got the glories of the Ukraine uh, palace, as I will describe it. So the war is glorified. There's no bloodshed on these images. But in a minute, uh, Zelensky struts down the flight of uh, stairs as if he was the fairy queen. We just uh, wait for this to play out. Here he is. And uh, this is the lead into the interview itself. But let's have a look at what was actually said. Now, we've taken some excerpts here. We'd like to thank Vanessa Beely for um, pointing us at some of this information. So I've got a number of very short quotes. Let's go through as fast as we can. We're ready to fight for a long time if we don't lose people. Uh, like, for example, Israel, we can live like this. So Zelensky is clearly happy for the war to go on. I do not think it's right to transfer hostilities to the Russian territory. There is a great risk that in such a case, uh, we will be left alone. He means abandoned by allies. If we're on the administrative border with Crimea, I think we can politically push for the demilitarization of the peninsula. Ukraine needs to grow up and realize that at one point or another, Ukraine may be alone. Some of our partners may break away. So he's pretty disparaging of the Ukrainian people themselves. He's also set a task for lawmakers, which is to equate corruption with treason. He's had to do this because it's clear that the treason is growing and growing inside Ukraine as the society breaks down. And uh, this is unsettling the Western allies. Uh, so he's now making... Uh, that a treason offence. But this is the good news. Ukraine is now open to partners and investors, and each of them can find their own niche and receive state support. So what does he want? Well, we, we're told here, and there's no doubt about it, it is of great importance that we are a tester, a pioneer in the good sense of the word, of the launch and use of many types of ammunition, modern ones. This is a great example for many businessmen around the world, I think we'll be number one in this area, military, tech and digital, at least on the European continent. David, very, very quickly, just for a little bit of comment. Um, this is, to me, quite disgusting. We're really seeing what this man is. He doesn't value life at all. It's let's get the businessmen in and let's develop the technology to kill more people in a more efficient way. It doesn't seem particularly uh, reality-based, that, that comment to me, Brian. I, I find it hard to believe that the Ukraine is going to be developing its own independent, high-tech, cutting-edge weaponry. What they're doing is they're testing and using a kit acquired from all around the West. That's not the same as having some incoming investment. And to view a war as an investment opportunity is is very very wrong-headed and when it's involving your own people it starts to look alarmingly callous uh, yes callous that's the word mark very quickly i i smell the presence of palantir 
with the war and technology thing. And I've talked about that recently, that top Bilderberg participant, Alex Karp, having planted his technological roots into Ukraine. So I, I sense Palantir's involvement in this. Okay, thank you very much. Well, we're certainly going to be following through on it, Mark, so we'll see what comes out. But where's the war heading? Well, it gets better or worse, depending on how you look at it. Uh, part of Zelensky's comment, many debts incurred during this war, I'm sure, will be restructured. But there'll be no gifts. And let's uh, follow that with Asia Times, which had a really interesting article, Ukraine to cost half a trillion dollars more if the war ends now. Ukraine war will end up being the most costly and perhaps corrupt foreign operation ever carried out by the United States. And uh, if we just uh, summarize the, the main text, um, they say that the World Bank um, and others have calculated that if the war stops tomorrow, it's going to cost uh, $600 billion. And then as a comparison, they say the war in Iraq featured a reconstruction program of 60 billion, and the US also spent 90 billion over 12 years to support Afghanistan. So we can see here uh, the huge scale of destruction in this war. And the objective of the West is to keep the proxy war going, is not to stop it. So uh, we're going to see more debt and we're going to see a bigger bill for some future reconstruction of Ukraine in whatever form the country remains. But we'll leave it that uh, words from Zelensky, some people suggest he's on drugs. I can't say he is or he isn't. But as David has suggested, the man is unbelievably cruel. Uh, when his own people are concerned. Well, let's move on. If you like what the UK column does, then uh, please join us, become a subscriber. And uh, amongst other things, you can, of course, jo join in the community and talk to other people of a like mind. Um, you can also buy from our shop. And uh, this is a big boost to us. There will be more products coming into the shop very shortly after our studio move. So stay posted on this one. And of course, please do share, excuse me, share the material uh, because uh, this uh, would give us enormous satisfaction. We're putting out the information and the aim is to get it out as far and wide as possible. Now, we've got an interview coming up. Um, this is tomorrow, the 29th of August at 1 p.m., Jeffrey Tucker. I don't know whether you have anything to say on that one, David. Uh, yes, uh, it's a very, uh, a very warm and very interesting uh, discussion with Jeffrey Tucker. He uh, founded the Brownstone Institute. Many of our viewers will be aware of their excellent um, and principled intellectual stand against all sorts of oppression. Uh, that really started pretty much with the, uh, the start of the lockdown. So we were talking about uh, all of that and all of his work and his work over the years, which goes right back to early days with Ron Paul and others. And uh, it was a real, a real pleasure to talk to him. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we've got uh, this one together, Tuesday at 12 noon. This is a ULEZ protest at Downing Street, London. That'll obviously be a very good one to get to if you can get up to London and support people there. Um, we've also uh, got this one coming up, uh, which is a meeting with Monica Schmidt, who is a lady that's come over from Australia. It's going to be in Newquay on the 5th of September at six o'clock in the evening. There will also be music with a short talk 
and the opportunity to mix and socialise with people. David, any any comment on that, lady? I think. Well, we're also hoping to do an interview with Monica uh, in, the, in the very near future, so we'll have more on her uh, experience during lockdown, and that's been quite substantial and uh, quite extreme in many ways. Uh, we'll have more on that uh, for you soon. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, well, a quick email that we've had in from Australia. This is a result of a conversation I had with a gentleman called Rob a little while ago, um, and he sent through um, an email with a bit of comment on um, a showing of the Sound of Freedom film in Australia. Uh, he said it opened this week and a quick search reveals it showing in all the big cinema complex change, chains, smaller independent chains, and also in small independent uh, cinemas locally. He said his wife and, uh, he says, my wife and I are now uh, living in a small regional town, about four hours drive north of Sydney, which is an independent cinema, and being a small town, it's not uncommon for film sessions to have only a handful of people. But he goes on to say, in this case, uh, there were a lot of people and that they stayed throughout the whole performance and nobody left during the credits. And they all stayed to watch the post-film speech by Jim uh, Cavazel. And uh, he said the same audience member, this was somebody spoke up at one stage, um, spoke thanking everybody for coming and asking them to spread the word. So it appears that a group of individuals teamed up to make that happen. Um, and that's very encouraging because uh, I think this is an extremely important film about children and what's been happening to them. Now, another email that we've had in, uh, thank you to Linda from this one. She's been challenging Oxford City Council on the Tart Drag Queen project. Um, so she asked some questions. Here are the response. Oxford City Council gave a grant of £500 to the project. Uh, the funds were committed as part of the assessment around one of the Oxford, Oxford Community Impact Fund. Uh, and um, with regard to a question about were local residents consulted about a drag camp for children, uh, there was a deflective answer which says we work closely with Thames Valley Police and it was all OK, but there is evidence of rising hate crime and violence towards people who are LGBT. And uh, finally here, uh, when they were asked about risk and impact assessments, it says all grant applications are required to have all the re relevant legal policies and procedures in place. But don't worry anyway, because the venue is a specialist one, uh, which is, is specifically set up for young people and has particular expertise relating to working with young people in a, quote, safe and inclusive way. Uh, what they didn't do is answer the question as to whether a risk assessment had been carried out. But that reply was from Councillor Susan Brown, who's the leader of the council. And just before we move on, uh, this is going back to uh, 2014, uh, when the UK column reported this Guardian story where Michael Gove was quoted, a revolutionary communist could lead Ofsted. So if the right candidate for any public appointment happens to be a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party or someone who has been generous enough to support a political party with their hard-earned cash, if they're the right person, then he or she will be appointed. That's the end of it. And on that note, David, over to you. In party politicians, Patrick Harvey, in this particular case, Patrick Harvey decided to do a little interview with the BBC. He did it in the open air. 
it did not go according to plan, and we have some video for you. Okay, apologies. We seem to have a little problem with that video clip, David. So we'll move on through. We'll see whether we can cover that in extra time. That's that's unfortunate because that's actually the heart of the story. But we'll see. I'll try and I'll try and fill in what actually happened. So um, Patrick Harvey is being interviewed by the BBC, and uh, uh, someone passing by said that uh, we should vote for any colour party that's not green. Um, and uh, the BBC interviewer tried to laugh this off, and then the member of the public uh, called Mr Harvey a deviant several times, and Mr Harvey uh, glowered at him and called him a bigot. So that was the that was the exchange. So I want to just dig into this a little bit. It was a very interesting exchange, um, and because Mr Harvey went on to say about homophobia and about all of the culture war that has been unleashed upon minorities by the bigoted majority, it would seem to be his position. And I think that's something that I, I, is, is an incorrect uh, characterization of what's going on. So, to start with, the man called him a deviant. So if we can have a little look at what this actually means, we have the definition here. Deviant behavior or thinking is different from what people normally consider acceptable. Okay, so this is a word. It's not a swear word. It's not, it's not a pleasant thing to be called, for sure. Um, but it relates to someone's thoughts or actions. It relates to how an individual behaves. It doesn't relate to the membership of a particular group, I would suggest. Um, now, Patrick Harvey um, did a, a column in The Scotsman, actually quite a good column. It explored all of his thoughts on pride and on being a member of the LGBT um, community and advocacy and political activist um, group. Um, and he said during this, he said, the truth is that trans and non-binary people have always been part of our community. Uh, whether we called ourselves queer, lesbian, gay, LGBT plus or anything else, we've played a vital active role from the Stonewall uprising onward. We stood together in one progress. So he's, he says here, we called ourselves queer. So he's identifying with the word queer, which is of course used extensively in terms of queer theory and others uh, to mean, uh, well, actually quite complicated things, but just the actual meaning of the word queer, as you'll see here, is a synonym of, um, of deviant or abnormal. Uh, it's a synonyms of, of deviant. So he's identifying with a synonym of deviant, but he's objecting to be called deviant. So you see how odd the language has become. Now, he received a great deal of support for his position, but Ms., uh, Mr. Harvey did. Firstly, the First Minister, of course. Hamza Yusuf, uh, he, he tweeted, there was simply no excuse. Bigotry and hatred aimed towards anyone. Okay, he, he said it was disgraceful, disgusting, and completely unacceptable. He said solidarity with Patrick Harvey. Now, this is a still below here of Mr. Yusuf uh, ranting against white people in Scotland. So there is horrendous hypocrisy over this. Um, bigotry and hatred aimed towards anyone apart from, it would appear, the Scots uh, is unacceptable to Mr Yusuf. Um, Patrick Harvey got a lot of support in the mainstream press. Here we see the Herald um, saying, Patrick Harvey, the homophobic abuse signals a new law, um, the, how, how Scotland has sunk to a new law. 
uh, and the the author Neil Mackay says, uh, I guess a fairly large selection of Scottish political media world would like to stand up and take a bow today after years of whipping up hysteria and hate around the issue of trans rights. One of Scotland's most prominent LGBT campaigners, a member of the Scottish government, Patrick Harvey, has been abused in the street, uh, been called a deviant. Would you like to take a bow? Isn't that what they wanted? Isn't this in the inevitable consequence? And make make the point here that the pushback against the uh, gender recognition, the trans ideology, the sexualization of children in schools has not come from the media. It's come from the people. The media have been doing their very best to ignore it. Mr. Harvey's also got support from the police. The police are going to investigate the use of this synonym for a word that Patrick himself identifies with. Right? So we've now got uh, the police are going to hound down this man. Um, they say, we hope people will come forward to help identify this individual. So they want his friends and relatives to, to, to uh, report him to the police for this terrible use of a synonym. Um, and it, it, it was actually the, it fell to the women who have been opposing this, uh, the trans ideology in Scotland very bravely to actually stand up against this and, and make a very good point. They're going to, they were having a protest on Sunday um, because they pointed out that Police Scotland are going to investigate the use of this word, but they weren't going to investigate or take any action when a woman protesting in Aberdeen against trans uh, ideology and uh, all that goes with it uh, was punched in the face by a trans rights activist, a, a man dressed as a woman. Uh, they said, we're fed up, uh, so, the, the, so it's women won't wish to the organisation. They said, so Police Scotland investigating someone calling Harvey names didn't bother to investigate a woman being assaulted or crowds of bullies shouting much worse abuse at women. And this is the, this is the fact. So here we see uh, some stills of the women won't wish uh, protest in Falkirk on Sunday. So the fact here is that uh, Mr Harvey is supported by the establishment, by the First Minister, by the press, by the police, but he's, uh, he's being hard done by. Uh, he's a victim here, and anyone that has a different view, however they might not express it in the most eloquent terms, they have to be hounded and they have to be silenced because they are, their views are unacceptable. In Scotland, it's very totalitarian, it's very, it's very much about thought control, and it's very oppressive. Okay, thank you for that, David. Uh, and interesting that the police are fully fully involved. So language has been changed, and then whatever language you use, if you use the wrong wrong language, the police are going to be on your back. Uh, but another organisation that's been monitoring free speech is hacked off. And a very big thank you to one of our viewers that pointed me in the direction of this interesting little story. Let's have a look at um, a, an article from Hacked Off's website, May the seventh. Um, 2012, free speech, not when a newspaper sets a private eye on a journalist. And to do this uh, very quickly, um, it concerns a gentleman called Peter Welby, uh, Wilby, who's a former editor of The Independent on Sunday and The New Statesman, and he describes a, an award-winning comment writer. Um, but he actually um, uh, took a shot at the Daily Express over their reporting of the McCann case. And um, uh, basically, he was getting tired that the Daily Express and other newspapers were continually uh, reporting the McCann story. Now, remember, this is about a little girl 
disappearing. In the hacked off article, it directs you back to original comment in the Guardian newspaper by Mr. Wilby, uh, where, he, where he wrote, even the belief that the Daily Express is a hopeless newspaper that couldn't tell you the time of the day, one of the few certainties in a turbulent world, took a knock. Um, there's some other comment as well. Um, so he took a sideways swipe at the, uh, at the Express, but his main target was uh, what was happening with the McCann stories. Well, let's jump to 2023. Former newspaper editor given suspended sentence for viewing child uh, sexual abuse. And here's Peter Wilby, former editor of The Independent on Sunday, had more than 100 indecent images of children on his computer. And this is dating between 2013 and 2022. So those are the ones that the police found. But he said he'd been accessing them since the late 1990s and he admitted having a sexual interest in children. And the story went on to talk about the publications he'd written for, including The Guardian and The New Statesman. And uh, if we look at the comment from the National Crime Agency, they said the material accessed by Wilby and recovered from his computer showed real children being cruelly and sexually abused. Uh, he was viewing this content while working as the editor of prominent national news outlets, a role in which he was entrusted to form the news agenda for the British public, a trust which he has greatly betrayed. And uh, the last comment here, while there is a global demand for this material, children will continue to be abused. The National Crime Agency is committed to tackling child sexual abuse in all its forms to disrupt offenders and protect children. Now, if we come back to the, the article, there's a little bit more detail. If you go to the Hacked Off website, you can see it uh, because basically the Express got a private detective or a company involved and they spent £963.50 in surveilling uh, Peter Wilby. And I just find this aspect of the story very interesting because why did they do that? Did they do it simply because he, he had a cheap swipe at the Express over Madeleine McCann? Or could it be they did it uh, because they knew slightly more about this particular man and some of his uh, um, preferences? Now, I want to ask a question here. When, we, we cannot say, of course, that Hacked Off or the author, Brian Cathcart, actually knew what was going on with Wilby. But we have Hacked Off as an organization setting itself up to protect truth and accuracy in the media. And I just get a rather uncomfortable feeling about this uh, particular incident. David, I'm just going to ask you for your feeling. Um, have I got this one right or not? But there's just something about this. We have newspapers. They had no idea what was going on, um, but they were very quick to defend this man. There seems to be very commonly a lot more known or at least suspected. Uh, people have hear rumours. People have some sort of sense that something isn't right with somebody. And there's not enough evidence to go to the police or if there is, they don't do it. Um, and And things are covered up or brushed under the carpet and, and nothing is done. And this there seems to be a lot of people in public life that when they're exposed, yeah, there's an indication that people knew. Maybe they couldn't take any action, maybe they could, I don't know. But uh, there seems to be potentially more to this. 
Okay, thank you for that. Uh, well, let's just end with a couple of quick slides. This is going back to 2013. Uh, what have we got? Bosses at the fraud office use secret emails uh, to cover up £1 million payoffs. And at the time, the UK column said, um, shouldn't the real headline be bosses at the fraud office commit fraud? Uh, but uh, uh, we'll leave that one. And here's the crime agency where the chairman had to resign. This is back to August 2013. Uh, he had to resign after failing to declare his role as a director of, man uh, of a management consultancy. And finally, just to uh, focus people's attention at this time, around 2012-13, the UK column was warning and warning about the massive attack on free speech and the media uh, and the press. Uh, this was largely coming in around the Leveson inquiry, but of course, Hacked Off was at the middle of that. Common Purpose was there, the Journalist Foundation. We even had Russians in the background. And we said that this was uh, Cameron's big society coming in with a vengeance. Uh, but of course, now we can see we've got the online harms bill and the regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, REPA, which Mike Robinson has been warning is going to affect social media. So we'll leave that one there. Um, David, you're going to jump us overseas to Argentina. Yes, we've been meaning to look at this for a little while. And uh, so we'll start off with the economy. How are things going in the Argentinian economy? Notoriously high inflation. Well, they're not going well at all. ABC Trading Economics reporting the inflation rate is running around 113% currently uh, per annum. So that's pretty horrendous. Um, to give you an idea just how it's been in Argentina for some time, looking at the exchange rate against the pound, now the, the, the purchasing power of the pound, as we all know to our cost, has, <coughs> excuse me, has declined a great deal. Uh, but if you look here from before the pandemic, uh, it took 44 uh, pesos, Argentinian pesos, to, to, to get a pound. And now it takes 440. So if you can imagine things being 10 times worse, that's what it is in Argentina. And finally, on, on uh, economic statistics, we've got the, the government bonds and, and, and other figures. Uh, for, for comparison, UK government bonds, gilts, 10-year gilts, are trading about 4.4% uh, interest rate. And Argentinian government bonds are more than, more than 10 times worse, at 49%. Um, the central bank interest rate is 118%. And for those who say, don't worry, if they put the central bank interest rate up enough, it will, it will cure inflation. There's some, there's some evidence to suggest that's not always true. And the credit rating is triple C minus, which is junk. Now, against this background, and a great deal of human suffering uh, as a result, uh, we have Javier Mili is uh, heading the polls, heading the, the primary, has, has headed the primary, uh, to be the next Argentinian um, president. And this is really shaking things up. The Financial Times here reports uh, calling him a, a radical uh, right winger. Now, uh, what he is, he's libertarian. I was watching one of his speeches there just before we went live. He said, stealing is wrong. And given that stealing is wrong, uh, central banks um, are one of the greatest thieves in the history of mankind. This is radical stuff indeed. Um, so he's, he got 30% at the primary and uh, is, is talking about 
uh, really you know, changing things quite significantly. He says we will put an end to Kirchnerism and the parasitic thieving political class that is sinking this country, uh, referring to Kirchner, uh, the former president. Now, the Guardian don't like him. This is one of the reasons I do. The Guardian really don't like him. They call him the false prophet versus the Pope here. And uh, they've got a very shouty uh, red face photograph of him so that you understand how they feel. And uh, he said, they say he's, he's been pledged to wa wage a cultural battle. This is another, this is just like Patrick Harvey's talking about a culture war that, that he claims to be the, uh, uh, the, the victim of. And I, I don't accept that uh, narrative at all. Uh, and so the Guardian say, in one corner in the ring stands uh, Javier Emile, 52, self-described former tantric sex coach, outsider, anarcho-capitalist, and front-runner in Argentina's up-and-coming up elections. And the other, his compatriot, Pope Francis, world champion of the poor, repeatedly der derided about Argentina's likely next president as an effing communist and a, represent of the, a representative of the evil one on earth. Uh, for promoting the doctrine of social justice to aid the underprivileged, says the Guardian. It was quite a pompous tone. And um, uh, so the, they quote the Pope in, in ways which make it clear that the Pope's taking a, a, a role in Argentinian politics. That alone's uh, interesting. The Guardian continues in its, in its pub-thumping vein, describing in a vain popping victory speech after Argentina's open Primaries on 13th of August, Tousle Haird uh, merely promised the demise of government benefits because they're based on that atrocity that says Spiritism well, need a right is born and its maximum expression, the aberration called social justice. Um, he accused the pontiff of preaching communism to the world and he said, quote, he was going to dynamite the central bank, abolish Argentina's, Argentina's tuition-free public education system, disband public health services, He's also treading fearlessly into anti-woke territory, saying he will reinstate the ban on abortion, shut down the Ministry of Women, Gender and Diversity, as well as the Ministries of Science. And he said that climate change is a socialist lie. Health, education, labour and public works will all, departments will all be closed. And he will legalise the sale of firearms. So uh, I think he will have some people cheering in Texas, uh, if nowhere else. And it is, a, it is actually a genuinely different uh, view of how to run a country. With, with, a, with a very small government. And it's the first one that's actually legitimately put this forward. And I think it could only be in a place where you have such a desperate economic condition that it would even be considered. Uh, Washington Post, very briefly, uh, they call him Trump admiring. Uh, they quote a small grocery store uh, owner saying, uh, in Argentina, prices last 48 hours. He has to um, withdraw some of his stock for sale. He'd rather hold on to the stock than have pesos. Um, and uh, just to put, uh, as, a, as a final word, just to uh, let people know where this place is, Argentina, in terms of their election cycle, uh, Melee's uh, victory has propelled him forward. Early polls have him leading the field of five in the first round of October 22. To win outright, a candidate must capture 45% of the vote or 40% with a 10-point lead over the rest of the field. If falls short of that, there'll be a, an election runoff on November the 19th. Okay, so, Dave. Uh, there's at least one politician who's not following the official agenda. And that will cause him big problems, I think. Uh, Mark, let's bring you back in. And uh, we're still on the subject of uh, big banky, big banking. We've got uh, Mark Carney, uh, Mark Carnage, that uh, Mike Robinson likes to call him. What's he been up to? 
Uh, more carnage, one might say, gentlemen. Um, the former Bank of England and the former Bank of Canada boss is now heading the Bloomberg board. So this is where banking meets news. Although Bloomberg is financial news in part, uh, banker becomes newsman in a sense in terms of being on the Bloomberg editorial board. And uh, there's not much one needs to say about that. It almost speaks for itself. Um, Mr. Carney has previously worked with Mr. Bloomberg on climate-related projects. That's Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York and head of a lot of mayors' climate change groups. Uh, uh, so on and so forth, Mr. Carney is expected to continue in his role as chairman of the Canadian investment firm Brookfield Asset Management. Uh, Brookfield did not immediately comment to a BBC request for comment. This is a BBC piece we're reading from. Mr. Carney, who currently serves as United Nations Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance, became governor of the Bank of England in July 2013 and stood down from that role in March 2020. Before that, he was governor of his home country's central bank, the Bank of Canada. And uh, a significant part of this is that other headline that he's been linked to a firm getting into deforestation. Now, that's really naughty of Mr. Carney and very contradictory. Now, this is from a pro-climate change group, globalwitness.org. And it's still interesting to read, to get an objective read on this. Our goal is a more sustainable and just and equal planet. We want forests and biodiversity to thrive, fossil fuels to stay in the ground, and corporations to prioritize the interests of people and the planet. A Canadian asset manager, part run by green finance champion Mark Carney, cleared thousands of football fields worth of tropical forest in Brazil, our investigation can reveal from globalwitness.org an estimated 9,000 hectares of deforestation, the legality of which could not be proven by Brookfield Asset Management, took place on eight farms owned and managed by Brookfield's soybean farming empire. So basically what they're saying is the pro-climate change guru, Mark Carney, um, has evidently been involved in deforestation. And of course, forests are a sink to take carbon out of the atmosphere. And this is the last part of this. There will be industries, we're quoting Mr. Carney, the former head of the Banks of England and Canada. This is back in 2019. This backdrop really spells out his hypocrisy. There will be industries, sectors, and firms that do very well during this process fighting climate change because they'll be part of the solution. But there will be also businesses and corporations that lag behind and they will be punished. He kind of means punished by the market, but of course, this is not market forces. This is forced markets. And companies that don't adapt to climate change will go bankrupt without question. So uh, there's more to be looked at here, but it's fairly clear that he has at least been involved with firms that advocate deforestation, which directly contradicts, Brian, the mantra of the climate change fighters. So uh, that's enough for now. I'll have a little bit more probably on this and extra. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, I'm just going to add very, very quickly here that, uh, of course, if we look into banks, um, we're finding fraud and corruption. So uh, let's look at this one, another Guardian article. We seem to be having a Guardian day today, uh, but it's talking about Goldman Sachs trader found guilty of mortgage fraud. That was a call cool one billion. That was back in reported back in 2013. 
this is Barclays boss uh, Bob Diamond to quit after interest rate fix. That was Barclays cheating millions of customers. And this one really caught my attention from 2012 uh, from UK Column Report. Strategic combination of Barclays African operations with ABSA, bringing together Barclays Africa with ABSA is an important step in furthering our, quote, one bank in Africa strategy, unquote, and the goal to become the go-to bank across the continent. So don't worry, trust us, the banks, we're going to manage all of the money in Africa, and I'm sure everybody will be uh, well-fed and cared for as they do it. Let's come back to you, uh, Mark, because, of course, all these sorts of policies head back to the big players, uh, of which the UN is a key one. Yeah, of course, the WHO, World Health Organization, is part of the UN system. That's crucial to remember. They operate on that framework, that worldview. And uh, just this past Thursday, UK Column, in the form of me, covered its first WHO virtual press conference. That was August 24th. And a new civil society commission was announced. And I got a little bit on that just to kind of whet our appetites for today. And moving on from there. The new WHO Civil Society Commission just created and announced this past Thursday during that press conference is to strengthen civil society organizations' role in accelerating progress on global health. WHO launched the WHO Civil Society Commission and held the inaugural meeting of its steering committee in Geneva today. That was this past Thursday, the day of that press conference. The commission provides for the first time the ability to channel advice and recommendations in a more structured and systemic or systematic manner from civil society to WHO on health priorities and related issues, the historic role of civil society organizations in bringing about change in public health, not just public health, is well known. While WHO has a longstanding tradition of working with Uh, civil society organizations, the establishment of this commission, a brand new thing here, takes the collaboration to a new level. Of course, uh, civil society basically consists of the public sector, the private sector kind of having intersecting circles. And then the other intersecting circle is civil society organizations themselves, which is public sector and private sector nonprofits community economic development organizations, faith-based organizations, uh, social economy, uh, businesses, and uh, uh, NGOs that are funded by George Soros Open Society Initiatives. And my experience, Brian, more often than not, what it does is it manufactures consent. You have the big corporations on top, you have the WHO in the middle, and you have so-called civil society organizations on the bottom pressure from below, pressure from below, pressure from above, and it creates the illusion of grassroots support of a given policy because invariably the civil society organizations that are allowed to take part are the ones that are already on board philosophically. Uh, If if they're dissenters, they're not going to be involved anyway. So this history has shown us is largely the manufacturing of consent. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Somebody in the chat box has described it as a UN boot on our necks, and I think we could have a discussion on that. But David, over to you. Yeah, you've got a little image here for us to end on and a video. 
Yes. So first of the image, we would like to welcome uh, the Donald, Donald Trump, back to Twitter. Uh, he tweeted out his own mugshot from his arrest and, uh, on uh, charges relating to um, January 6th and the fallout from the uh, last election. And he, he tweeted out his own mugshot and uh, he said, this is election interference, essentially, and, and I see his point. And uh, never surrender, or uh, in, in terms we would maybe recognise in Scotland and Ireland, no surrender. So uh, that was an interesting and defiant um, point from Mr Trump. And the final item we've got here is, uh, is a short section of a song. We'll play the whole song in extra time. And I want to put it out today because... There's been a lot of people getting concerned that the government's going to do another lockdown. There's uh, the drums of, of alarm and fear over COVID are again beating. And there seems to be at least some sort of push towards a return to masks in some situations. And I just want to remind everyone how far we've come when the lockdown first happened. Uh, people were pretty stunned and, um, and surprised and, and, and mostly blown away by the propaganda that they were seeing, which was wall to wall. And then slowly and steadily, the opposition gained ground. It won the argument. It won the technical argument. And it won, it won the argument for people's hearts and minds via songs and memes. And one song at a time, one meme at a time. And huge progress was made. And that's the starting point now. We're not starting from where we were in 2020. We're starting from a point where we've already got anthems and we've already got the ideas. And if they try to block us down again, there's going to be a very different story. And just to illustrate the point, we have here uh, Blind Joe singing, I will not comply. Thank you. Thank you for that, David. Uh, well, I will not comply, certainly, but uh, we not complying makes all the difference because numbers count. So have a think about how you can team up with other people. A very big thank you to all UK Column supporters and a very big thank you to the wonderful family that visited us on Friday and made a donation. Very kind and it was lovely to see you. We'll end on that happy note. And if you're signed up with UK Column, we'll be back for an extra in a few minutes. Join us then. Bye bye.